Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Beth, and I'll be reading you today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, January 22nd. We start with the weather and the lottery. For today, high of 37, not as cold as it's been this weekend, with some sun mixing with clouds. Tomorrow, the temperature is up to 40, but with a bit of rain and sleet in the afternoon. And the temperatures increase throughout the week, a high of 41 on Wednesday and 48 on Thursday, but with that comes two days of occasional rain and drizzle. Here are some lottery numbers from the weekend. The numbers game for Sunday, January 21st, the midday drawing was 8998. <clears throat> Sorry, that's 8998. And the evening drawing was 3198. Mass cash for Sunday. 10, 16, 30, 33, 34. And Saturday's Powerball number, 16, 31, 34, 47, 65, Powerball 10. Here is your first front page story with the headline, Meeting That Responsibility. The Falmouth representative to the Barnstable County Assembly of Delegates, announced that he will be deploying with the Massachusetts Army National Guard on January 25th as part of the U.S. military's Operation Inherent Resolve. Dan Gesson, 23, a second lieutenant infantry platoon leader for the Army National Guard, said he will continue serving as Falmouth's delegate remotely during his deployment. He said balancing the duties of his deployment with the Assembly of Delegates will not be without its complexities, but will be doable. I definitely want to emphasize that the priorities that exist, whether it's housing, wastewater, the cost of living on the Cape, or the environment, they're going to remain the same for me whether I'm here or I'm there, Gesson said, and I'm fully committed to making sure I speak for Falmouth on these issues, and I continue the effort that I've been pursuing thus far. Operation Inherent Resolve is targeted operations to defeat the Islamic State group in Iraq and Syria areas of influence, according to the U.S. Department of Defense. The son of refugees from the former USSR, Gessen was born and raised in Falmouth. My parents came during the 1980s when there was an opportunity to escape the USSR, he said. I know that's allowed me a lot of opportunities here in the U.S., and I believe it's an individual responsibility to make sure these opportunities continue to be available to others. I kind of see my service in the military and on the Assembly of Delegates as a way of meeting that responsibility. He said he enlisted in the Army National Guard when he was still in high school at the age of 17. He was then awarded the National ROTC Scholarship and attended UMass Amherst. In 2020, Gesson ran for the Falmouth seat on the Assembly once State Senator Susan Moran stepped down to run for her current Mass Senate seat. Though initially unsuccessful, coming in second behind former Falmouth delegate and Falmouth Select Board member Douglas Brown, Gesson said he was appointed to the Assembly after Brown resigned in March 2022. In November that year, I ended up being re-elected for another full term and I've been serving ever since, Gesson said. 
The Assembly of Delegates is the legislative branch of Barnstable County government and responsible for adopting new regulations and maintaining checks and balances over the executive branch known as the Board of Regional Commissioners. The delegates are elected from each of the Cape's 15 towns and serve for two years. Among the issues Gesson said he is focused on during his tenure, housing remains the critical priority. The housing crisis is super significant for pretty much all Cape Codders. I don't think there's a bigger issue that affects the Cape on an individual level, but also just the businesses on the Cape and the community, too, he said. It is uncertain how long the deployment will be or where he will be stationed, but Gesson said he expects to be back on the Cape by mid-fall. Without a doubt, this isn't going to be the easiest and the most straightforward thing to balance this deployment and with the Assembly of Delegates, making sure I'm representing my constituents fairly, Gesson said, but I think it's very doable. I'm far from the first person to have ever done it. In other news, three Dennis Yarmouth Intermediate School students inadvertently ate a THC edible chocolate bar while on the school bus, <clears throat> which caused one to feel sick, according to the Yarmouth Police Department. The source of the chocolate bar has not yet been identified, according to police. Both the Yarmouth Police Department and school administration jointly consider the incident closed as immediate actions were taken to address the situation and ensure the well-being of the students, reads a Facebook post from the police department on Friday. Police announced on Thursday that three students were taken to Cape Cod Hospital when they suffered symptoms after eating a chocolate bar. According to the release, school resource officer Samantha Voltolini received word at 9.10 a.m. that a student was experiencing a reaction to an unknown substance they had consumed. The student was in the nurse's office at the time. The student reported eating part of a chocolate bar on the bus before arriving at school. Two other students had eaten portions of the candy bar but were not experiencing any noticeable symptoms. All three students were taken to the hospital by Yarmouth Fire Department for medical evaluation. This headline, Climate Change Denial, surges. Social media is still not doing enough to stop misinformation denying the existence and causes of climate change. That's the finding of a review of climate-related conversations on social media platforms by the public interest research organization Advance Democracy. Despite company pledges to crack down, falsehoods, hoaxes, and conspiracy theories circulated with few warning labels or links to credible information in 2023, contributing to a dramatic surge in the number of posts denying climate change last year. Nowhere was that surge more evident than on X, formerly Twitter, where the number of posts containing terms linked to climate change denial more than tripled for the second year in a row, advanced democracy found. They saw a significant increase in Facebook posts that dismissed climate change as an exaggeration or a hoax. Of the 10 Facebook posts with the most interactions, eight either denied climate change or promoted conspiracy theories. None included a link to Facebook's Climate Science Information Center or a fact check. TikTok also failed to rein in falsehoods even after the short-form video platform adopted a pro policy prohibiting climate misinformation last year, videos that deny or downplay climate change were viewed millions of times. 
Advanced Democracy says that in its review, only YouTube has improved. Eight of nine specific climate change denial phrases identified in Advanced Democracy's 2022 report are now accompanied by scientific information on climate change on that platform. The stakes have never been higher, said Michael Mann, who's a climate scientist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Climate change is one of the most contentious debates raged on social media platforms, which have emerged as a critical battleground to control the narrative about climate change, especially for the TikTok generation, Mann said. Social media is a primary means by which young people, those most likely to see the worst consequences of climate change, get their information today, he said. This trend suggests that bad actors have made a concerted effort to weaponize social media in a way that is especially targeted towards young people. Social media posts reviewed by Advanced Democracy are routinely peppered with references to climate scam and climate cult, or claims that global warming is a hoax, or that climate scientists are con con artists. When smoke from Canadian wildfires blanketed much of the U.S. last year, for example, conspiracy theorists falsely claim that the fires were intentionally set to promote a fake climate emergency. Though the public perception of climate change is shifting, it remains a politically divisive issue, with Democrats and Republicans growing further apart in the past decade and how they gauge the threat. Nearly 8 in 10 Democrats, or 78%, say climate change is a major threat to the country. About 1 in 4 Republicans describe climate change as a major threat. That's about the same as 10 years ago. And here's this week's column by Cape Cod Times Chief Photographer Steve Heaslip, titled, Winter's First Snowfall Gives Hope of More to Come. Snow Day. Two words that put a smile on any kid's face. Growing up, there was a sledding hill across the street, and as soon as the word went forth, it filled. Snow clothing then was a heavy pair of wool pants, a wool coat, and a pair of lace-up rubber snowboats and mittens. Sledding gear depended on the conditions. Plastic toboggans worked well in all conditions, fresh powder to slick ice. The round aluminum flying sauces were popular, but very hard to control. Flexible flyer sleds with runners were good in packed powder and tricky on ice but manageable. The pros laid on their stomachs, steering with their hands. Novices sat down, steering with feet. My first sledding accident happened on the flyer. Riding pro-style, I hit a patch of open ground. Sled stopped instantly. My lip ripped up a runner. A few stitches, and several days later, I was back on the hill, but under orders for Mom, sit on the sled, don't lay on it. The saucer, flyer, and an old wooden toboggan from my grandfather ride out most winters now, hanging up in the garden shed, always ready for a snow day. Alas, there hasn't been much snow the last few winters. The three inches that arrived last week was quickly washed away, but for the early riser, there was snow to play in. Poet Mary Oliver says, To pay attention, that is our endless and proper work. So, putting off snow removal, I went out to pay attention to the snow. First stop was a block away, a snowdrop blossom I spied a week ago. It was nowhere to be found. Perhaps it had been an apparition. 
The wet snow clung to everything like white glue on a child's art project. The snow walk quickly turned into a slush march. Rising temperatures sent down a steady rain, turning a winter wonderland into a gray, slushy cup. The storm drain in front of the house still resembled a carefully cut patchwork quilt in black and white, and was photo-worthy. It was more of a rain than snow day, but a start. Now that the snow shovel has been christened, hopefully the sleds will be next. Still a lot of winter ahead. And again, that's a column by Steve Heaslip, a photographer for the Cape Cod Times. And speaking of winter, this headline, Stay warm and avoid frostbite this winter using layers. As a bout of bitter and deadly cold sweeps the U.S., millions of Americans are being told to dress in layers if they must go outside. In places that rarely experience bone-chilling temps, that advice can be confounding. What does it mean to layer up? Is it different from just putting on a coat? Is there a way to do it wrong? For people in Minnesota, a state that is no stranger to the cold, they have wisdom to share. Layering meaning means wearing multiple pieces of clothing to keep your body comfortable in cold weather. Each layer creates an insulating pocket of air that protects you better than just wearing a big jacket, and layering helps move sweat and moisture away from your skin. No matter how cold it is, you're probably going to sweat when you go outside and start moving, said Claire Wilson, executive director of the Loppet Foundation, a nonprofit that promotes winter recreation and activities in Minneapolis. Wilson said she loves to shop at thrift stores for layers that don't break the bank. Just look for things that aren't cotton, she said. That's because cotton absorbs moisture, so it stays wet longer. Cotton socks can get wet in your boots or shoes if you walk in the snow, and a cotton shirt under your jacket can get wet with sweat. Instead, choose wool socks and fabrics made of fleece, polyester, or polypropylene, she said. She recommends starting with a base layer, then a mid-layer, and then an outer layer. The base layer is closest to your skin, so it's important for the fabric to wick away moisture, she said. Choose polyester over cotton for this. Then wear a mid-layer, a vest, or a shirt to keep your core warm. Frostbite, which is a painful injury in which skin freezes, blood flow decreases, and tissue gets damaged, can happen within minutes in cold weather when skin is not adequately covered. We see people with frostbite inside their shoes and gloves all the time, said Dr. James Minor, who's chief of emergency medicine at Hennepin County Med Center in Minneapolis. Symptoms include blistering of the skin because it's damaged, along with bruising and swelling. Frostbite can even result in the loss of a limb if it's not properly treated. So you should wear a winter jacket that falls closer to your knees than your hips, keep your legs warm with fleece-lined leggings or a pair of long underwear. Woolen socks and winter boots are a big help. Fur-lined gloves or mittens can also keep your hands warm and prevent dry skin. And don't forget to keep your ears cozy with earmuffs or a hat. Here is Today in History. Today is Monday, January 22nd, the 22nd day of 2024. There are 344 days left in the year. On this date in 1901, Britain's Queen Victoria died at age 81 after a reign of 63 years. She was succeeded by her eldest son, Edward VII. In 1938, Thornton Wilder's play Our Town was performed publicly for the first time in Princeton, New Jersey. 
1944, during World War II, Allied forces began landing at Anzio, Italy. In 1947, America's first commercially, commercially licensed TV station west of the Mississippi, KTLA in Los Angeles, made its official debut. On this day in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court, in its Roe v. Wade decision, declared a nationwide constitutional right to abortion. In 1995, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy died at the Kennedy compound at Hyannisport at age 104. In 1997, the Senate confirmed Madeleine Albright as the nation's first female Secretary of State. In 1998, Theodore Kaczynski pleaded guilty in Sacramento to being the Unabomber, responsible for three deaths and 29 injuries, in return for a sentence of life in prison without parole. In 2006, Kobe Bryant scored 81 points, the second highest in NBA history, in the LA Lakers' 122-104 victory over the Toronto Raptors. In 2008, actor Heath Ledger, age 28, was found dead of an accidental prescription overdose in a New York City apartment. And in 2009, President Barack Obama signed an executive order to close the Guantanamo Bay prison camp within a year. The facility remained in operation as lawmakers blocked efforts to transfer terrorist suspects to the United States. President Donald Trump later issued an order to keep the jail open and allow the Pentagon to bring new prisoners there. In other news, a Barnstable County Superior Court jury found a Yarmouth couple guilty on several charges of child abuse on Thursday. Brian Barnacle, 42, and Crystal Barnacle, 43, both were found guilty after a seven-day trial following an investigation by the Yarmouth Police Department, they are scheduled to be sentenced on Tuesday. According to a press release from the Cape and Island DA's office, Brian Barnacle was charged with several counts of aggravated assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, assault and battery, reckless endangerment of child, strangulation, and intimidation of a witness. Crystal Barnacle was charged with counts of reckless endangerment of a child and wanton, recklessly permitting bodily injury to a child under 14. Under state law, aggravated assault and battery with a dangerous weapon can carry up to 15 years in prison. According to the DA's office, two children were repeatedly abused by Brian Barnacle between 2016 and 2021 and suffered multiple physical injuries. The children were struck with a cane, causing a gash on the head, hit numerous times with a belt, multiple times by Brian Barnacle's fists, which led to incidents of unconsciousness, struck with hands, causing a black eye, and being strangled by Brian Barnacle. While Crystal Barnacle is not alleged to have physically struck the victims, she was aware of the abuse and at many times present during it and never made an effort to stop it, said the DA's office. After police were involved, both Brian and Crystal intimidated the victims and witnesses involved, the DA's office said. The case was prosecuted by 2nd Assistant DA Tara Coppola and Victim Witness Assistant Deborah McCoy. The couple will return to the Barnstable Superior Court for sentencing on Tuesday at 2 p.m. The spokesperson from the DA's office declined the request for any additional comment. 
And from Washington, new Speaker Mike Johnson finds himself leading House Republicans with a majority in name only. Unable to unite his unruly right flank and commanding one of the slimmest House majorities in history, Johnson is being forced to rely on Democrats for the basics of governing, including the latest bill to prevent a federal shutdown. Approaching his first 100 days on the job, Johnson faces daunting choices ahead. He can try to corral conservatives who are pushing rightward in endless hours of closed-door meetings to work together as a team, or he can keep reaching out to Democrats for a bipartisan coalition to pass compromise legislation. So far, rather than the speaker of a dysfunctional GOP majority, Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, has shown he is willing to compile a rare, large supermajority of Democrats and Republicans to get things done with Democratic President Joe Biden. And that supermajority is exactly what some in Congress want, but others fear is coming. Everyone understands the reality of where we are, Johnson said at a news conference. The House Republicans have the second smallest majority in history, he said. We're not going to get everything we want, but we're going to stick to our core conservative principles. Johnson is about as conservative as they come in Washington. He's a movement conservative steeped in Christian beliefs who made his way from Louisiana working in the trenches of hard-right social policy, particularly against abortion, gay rights, and other issues. Elected in 2016, Johnson has become aligned with Donald Trump, who won the White House that year, and Johnson led a key legal challenge for Trump in 2020 trying to overturn Biden's election. For now, the far-right forces that ousted Johnson's predecessor, former Rep. Kevin McCarthy of California, from the Speaker's office are allowing a grace period. They are frustrated by Johnson's reluctance to take dramatic action, such as government shutdown, to win their priorities, but they are heartened that at least Johnson is forthcoming with them. But the hardline Republicans are watching and waiting. Any single lawmaker can file a motion for a vote to oust the Speaker, especially as Johnson confronts the challenges ahead on government spending, U.S. border security, and the wars in Ukraine and Gaza. It's a loss for the American people to join hands with Democrats to form a governing coalition, said Virginia Representative Bob Good, the newly elected chairman of the hard-right House Freedom Caucus, after last week's vote to keep government running. Good complained that passage of the short-term spending bill, which Biden signed into law before the Friday night deadline, was a failure. Johnson will confront another shutdown threat March 1st when some of the temporary funding again runs out. In many ways, Johnson finds himself living day-to-day, much the way McCarthy was, trying to keep Congress functioning and hold on to his job. Speaker Johnson is in a 24-hour survival mode, said Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, a key Democratic negotiator on the border bill. Republicans control the House by just a few seats, 220 to 213. That number will drop over the weekend when one of the many lawmakers who have already announced their retirements leaves early. Absences, illnesses, and weather delays trim the numbers further. In other news, after days of wrangling over control of a heavily trodden stretch of the U.S.-Mexico border, federal officials remain in a showdown with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who has refused to cede any ground. 
The deaths of a mother and her two children earlier this month brought this rift to a boiling point. Federal officials say Texas is unable to properly attend to human safety in this area and rescue migrants who become trapped or succumb to dangerous conditions when crossing the Rio Grande. Texas authorities blame the Biden administration for the three deaths, saying they happened because the U.S. has failed to properly enforce its immigration laws. At the heart of this standoff were the victims, Victamer de la Sanchez-Ceros, 33, her daughter Yorlai Ruby, 10, and son Jonathan Augustin, 8, who drowned while crossing the river the evening of January 12th. The family was traveling with Monica de la Sanchez-Ceros, 30, and her son Victor, 10, both of whom were rescued by Mexican officials. All five family members were from the state of Mexico. The drowning deaths happened near Eagle Pass's Shelby Park, a 47-acre city property that the state took over after migrant crossings began to increase. The city has said it had no role in the state's action to prevent migrants from entering the U.S. It said public entry to the area has been restricted. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security in early January ordered Texas to stop blocking Border Patrol's officials' access to the 2.5-mile stretch by the end of Wednesday or the Justice Department would take legal action. Federal law enforcement has asked the Supreme Court to intervene and press Texas to remove its fencing and barriers and restore Border Patrol access to the border. Lawyers for Texas say they are simply affirming their state's rights amid a border crisis. They also disputed the details of what happened with the woman and her two children who drowned and differed on the details of two other migrants in distress that night in the river. At 8 p.m. January 12th, Victor de la Sanchez-Ceros and her two children drowned near Shelby Park, according to court documents. U.S. officials say that de la Sanchez-Ceros and her children were in the water near the boat ramp when they drowned. Mexican officials said they never entered U.S. territory. At 8 p.m. that same evening, Mexican officials alerted the U.S. Border Patrol about two migrants in distress on the U.S. side of the river near the Shelby Park boat ramp. Monica de la Cerro Sanchos and her son were also near the U.S. side before they turned back. Texas attorneys said in court documents that state personnel didn't see anyone in distress at the water at that time and only learned about the drownings after the fact from Border Patrol. Seven migrants in two groups had tried to cross that night. The first was a group of five people, the de la Sanchez-Cerros woman and the three children. Border Patrol attempted to reach Monica de la Sanchez-Ceros and her 10-year-old son. Mexican officials wouldn't comment on whether the two mothers were related, but Mexican media outlets, outlets identified them as sisters. Two men also tried to cross that night. When a Border Patrol agent arrived at Shelby Park, the gate erected by the state was closed. In a conversation through the gate, Personnel from the Texas Military Department, a branch of the state police that operates at the border, refused the agent access. The Rio Grande becomes eerily quiet at night. Any persons in distress can easily be seen and heard, and can voice, as can voices or sneezes from the Mexican shore. The distance from the boat ramp to Mexico is less than 100 yards. When the Border Patrol agent arrived at the park and told Texas officials about the drownings, State personnel had only heard about two migrants who had been found that evening, and both had been found alive. 
There was a migrant woman who had been detained near the boat ramp and transferred to state police. And between 8.30 and 9.30, personnel also found a migrant climbing near a shipping container in Shelby Park. When the man complained of symptoms of hypothermia, state personnel transferred him to emergency medical services for treatment. Lawyers for the state contest the allegation that Texas won't allow federal law enforcement access to the area in dispute. They said the state allows Border Patrol to access the boat ramp at Shelby Park so agents can patrol along the river and lets them have access at other locations along the Rio Grande. In court filings, Danley, who was from the Border Patrol, said that federal agents were not permitted to visually monitor the Shelby Park area when the three deaths and two rescues happened. He said Texas officials have blocked mobile video surveillance inside the park's area that can find migrants in distress, he said. And from Portland, Maine, Maine Governor Janet Mills and a state lawmaker who immigrated from Somalia unveiled a proposal on January 19th to try to resolve the state's serious worker shortage by tapping swiftly growing immigrant communities. Maine traditionally has had among the smallest immigrant populations in the country. According to the 2020 census, only about 4% of the state's residents were born outside the U.S. That has been gradually changing as tens of thousands of residents descended from Somalia and other African countries have made homes in Portland and Lewiston, two of the state's biggest cities. Those arrivals helped push up the percentage of foreign-born residents by about a percentage point between 2000 to 2022, according to census figures. The Office of New Americans is proposed in a bill by State Representative Dekwa Talak, the first Somalia immigrant to become mayor of a U.S. city in 2021 when she took office in South Portland. She was elected to the Maine legislature last year. Dalek and Mills say the bill would address shortages in critical industries, including healthcare, education, and construction. Under the bill, among the new office's primary activities would be providing pathways for immigrant employees to obtain professional accreditation and licenses. So we've reached the halfway point of the broadcast, and at this time we read today's obituaries. Joanne Ferguson Brooks, Ph.D., passed away peacefully on Christmas morning at the Pavilion Nursing and Rehab Facility in Hyannis at 93 years old. She was born in Hyannis on March 29, 1930. Joanne was a proud 12th generation Cape Cotter, being a direct descendant of several of the original pilgrims, including William Brewster and of Sea Captain Maynard Bierce. She was a member of the Mayflower Society and the DAR. Joanne grew up in Hyannis and spent most of her childhood living on C Street at Linnell's Dairy with her mother, stepfather Robert Sherman, and older sister Camille. Some of her fondest memories were riding in the milk truck with Pop and running out from the truck to make the daily deliveries. Many years later, she could still point out the houses and remember the names of the families who were on the route. Janet, uh, Joanne graduated from Bridgewater State University in 1951 with a degree in education and started teaching in the Cape Cod public school systems from Harwich to Sandwich. She was a girls' basketball coach. In 1963, she took a substitute teaching position at Riverview School in East Sandwich and stayed there for 27 years, retiring after many years as executive director, during which time she significantly grew the school's reputation and enrollment. 
During those years, she went on to earn a master's degree, and in her 50s, she earned her Ph.D., an accomplishment of which she was very proud. She loved and was so proud of her family, she loved to travel, see new things, and meet new people, and especially to combine family and travel. Married to Lawrence Brooks, the family moved from Hyannis to the suburbs, Centerville. Joanne loved to play couples bridge. She kept the three kids in their rooms in quiet while the adults played cards in the living room. She had many teacups as winning trophies. Joanne put considerable time and effort into her genealogical research and eventually mapped a family tree for her children. On one trip to Scotland, she found the church in Paisley, where her great-grandparents were married. It turns out that us kids have many extended Cape Cod cousins. Joanne loved cars. She taught all her kids to drive, standard shift required. One of her favorite things to do was to go for a drive around town or by the beach. Mom, now you can drive wherever and whenever you want to go. She is survived by her sons Peter of Osterville and Dwight of Hyannis and her daughter Karen of Hyannis. She was predeceased by her ex-husband Lawrence Brooks and sister Camille Torrey. Visiting hours will be on Thursday, January 25th from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Doan Beale and Ames Funeral Home, 160 West Main Street in Hyannis. John Edward Heslin, Jr. from Kingston, born April 7, 1932, and died January 7, 2024. He was preceded in death by his wife Elizabeth, his son Jack, and his brothers Richard and Robert. He is survived by his sister Kathleen Hobson, his daughters Aaron King, Becky King, and Carolyn Satino and son Mark Heslin. He is also survived by eight grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. John grew up in Cranston, Rhode Island, the oldest of three siblings. He attended Cranston High School and later attended Rhode Island College, where he graduated in 56. While in college, he met his wife, Elizabeth Lake, and they were married for over 65 years. John had a distinguished career as an educator in Rhode Island as well as the Mass Public Schools. He was the varsity girls soccer coach at Bridgewater Raynham High School for over 20 years and was also one of the founders of the Bridgewater Youth Soccer Association. John and his wife returned, uh, retired to Marston's Mills in 2002. In his retirement, he played golf every week and spent time with the grandchildren. He was active in Our Lady of Hope Chapel where he volunteered in the St. Vincent de Paul Society. He was a Eucharistic minister serving the homebound and regularly helped the priests with Sunday Mass. John was a Navy veteran during the Korean War. A funeral Mass will be held on March 16th at Our Lady of Hope Chapel in West Barnstable. Following the Mass, there will be a Celebration of Life reception in Plymouth. Back to the news, and here's something that might make you feel a little old with this headline, Apple's Macintosh computer turns 40. Technological, uh, technology innovation requires solving hard technical problems, right? Well, yes and no. As the Apple Macintosh turns 40, what began as Apple prioritizing the squishy concept of user experience in his 1984 flagship product is today clearly vindicated by its blockbuster product since. It turns out that designing for usability, efficiency, accessibility, elegance, and delight pays off. 
Apple's market capitalization is now over $2.8 trillion, and its brand is every bit as associated with the term design as the best New York or Milan fashion houses are. Apple turned technology into fashion and did it through user experience, but it all began with the Macintosh. When Apple announced the Macintosh personal computer with a Super Bowl television ad in 1984, it more resembled a movie premiere than a technology release. The commercial was, in fact, directed by filmmaker Ridley Scott. That's because founder Steve Jobs knew he was not selling just computing power, storage, or a desktop publishing solution. Rather, Jobs was selling a product for human beings to use, one to be taken into their homes and integrated into their lives. This was not about computing anymore. IBM, Commodore, and Tandy did computers. As a human-computer interaction scholar, I believe the first Macintosh was about humans feeling comfortable with the new extension of themselves, not as computer hobbyists, but as everyday people. All that computer stuff, circuits and wires and separate motherboards and monitors, was neatly packaged and hidden away with one sleek integrated box. You weren't supposed to dig into that box, and you didn't need to dig into that box, not with the Macintosh. The everyday user wouldn't think about the contents of that box any more than they thought about the stitching in their clothes. Instead, they would focus on how that box made them feel. As computers go, was the Macintosh innovative? Sure, but not for any particular computing breakthrough. The Macintosh was not the first computer to have a graphical user interface or employ the desktop metaphor, icons, files, folders, windows, and so on. The Macintosh was not the first personal computer meant for home, office, or, pers or educational use. It was not the first computer to use a mouse. It was not even the first computer from Apple to be or have any of the things. The Apple Lisa, released a year before, had them all. It was not any one technical thing that the Macintosh did first, but the Mac brought together numerous advances that were about giving people an accessory, not for geeks or techno-hobbyists, but for home office moms and soccer dads and eighth-grade students who used it to write documents, edit spreadsheets, make drawings, and play games. The Macintosh revolutionized the personal computing industry and everything that was to follow because of its emphasis on providing a satisfied, simplified user experience. Where computers typically had complex input sequences in the form of typed commands like Unix or DOS or multi-button mice, Xerox or Commodore, the Macintosh used a desktop metaphor in which the computer screen presented a representation of a physical desk surface. Users could click directly on files and folders on the desktop to open them. It also had a one-button mouse that allowed users to click, double-click, and drag and drop icons without typing commands. The Macintosh simplified the interaction techniques required to operate a computer and improved functioning to reasonable speeds. Complex keyboard commands and dedicated keys were replaced with point-and-click operation, pull-down menus, draggable windows and icons, and system-wide undo, cut, copy, and paste. Unlike with the Lisa, the Mac could run only one program at a time, but this simplified the user experience. The Mac was the first personal computer to make 
to, use, to make user experience the driver of technical achievement. It indeed was simple to operate, especially compared with com command line computers at the time. It is ironic that the Mac technology being commemorated in January 2024 was never really about technology at all. It was always about people. This is inspiration for those looking to make the next technology breakthrough. Here is today's Ask Carolyn column with the headline, Dad tells son that no real man wants to go to a baby shower. <clears throat> Dear Carolyn, my wife and I are expecting our first baby. The baby shower is next weekend and I was really looking forward to it. My dad wants to plan something for the guys to do that day. He was shocked when I said I was going to the baby shower. He said, no real man wants to go to a baby shower and I'd be miserable at a girly baby party. I think that's nuts. I want to see the gifts for our son and celebrate the new baby. My dad won't back down. He went on a rant about this generation of men letting our wives feminize us and how it's ruining society, and if I do this, he's going to feel like he failed as a father. My wife has nothing to do with me wanting to be there, but he won't listen. I don't know if this is a hill I want to die on, but I also think I'd regret missing our baby shower just because my dad's being an idiot. What should I do? Signed, Not a Real Man. Dear Not a Real Man, Amazing how much propaganda has seeped into family connections. Amazing, horrifying, and sad. I'm sorry your dad has lost it. You don't have to keep arguing with him, though. His question was asked and answered. Thanks, Dad, but I'll be at the shower. The end. Meanwhile, when he huffs and puffs, you implement one, implement one of the following. Yeah, gotta run, talk later, then hang up or leave, or I gave you my answer, next topic. Or, interesting. Change the subject. You're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to mine. Change the subject. Hang up or leave. Ranting, guilting, shame, and refusing to back down are all his concerns, not yours. They're only yours if you agree to keep listening or feel you have to. He won't listen is irrelevant to your decision because you attend the shower if you want. Done. These are hard steps, but well-timed. Raising children requires the backbone to do what you think is right under some significant outside pressure to do something else. Here are some other readers' thoughts on this. One writes, Believe me, this is just the start of your dad's opining on your parenting. Stand up now. I can hear him questioning your manliness if you change a diaper. Somebody else said, your dad's a glass bowl. I'm in my mid-40s and almost all our friends had co-ed baby showers. Kids with two dads, single fathers, or nine binary parents shouldn't be celebrated with showers. Someone else wrote, please defend your wife against the malicious remarks undoubtedly coming her way. My husband's family spent decades blaming me for his choices, and his refusal to stand up to them obliterated my faith in our relationship. And here's some television things that are happening tonight on ABC at 8 p.m. It's the season premiere of The Bachelor. The 28th season of this beloved dating reality series premieres tonight, featuring 28-year-old tennis pro Joey Graziotti and a group of 32 new contestants, including Miami Dolphins cheerleader Samantha uh, Washington. On NBC at 8 p.m., it's America's Got Talent Fantasy League. The qualifying rounds conclude. One act is given a golden buzzer and earns a spot in the finals, with the audience vote sending five, five acts 
through to the semifinals. On ABC at 10, it's a new series called Bad Romance. This gripping exploration of love gone wrong takes an intimate look at the complexities that can arise in matters of the heart, aiming to shed light on various cautionary tales of romance by showcasing real-life relationships that went sideways. And the Investigation Discovery Channel at 10 p.m. It also streams on Max. It's the season premiere of The Playboy Murders. This true crime series returns with murder and mystery within the world of the popular men's magazine Playboy. The season begins with the story of Sandy Bentley, who, alongside her identical twin sister, was a former living girlfriend of Hugh Hefner's and rose to fame until her stardom became shrouded in suspicions of foul play. And on the CW tonight at 8 p.m., it's a new series called Ride. Hallmark Channel's Western series makes its debut on the CW tonight with the pilot episode titled Legend of the Fall, which follows a rodeo's family attempt to save their ranch after a tragic event. Back to the news, and as you've probably heard by now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his Republican presidential campaign Sunday, ending his White House bid just before the New Hampshire primary while endorsing his bitter rival, Donald Trump. But as some Trump critics cheered, DeSantis nodded toward Trump's primary dominance and attacked Haley in an exit video he posted on social media. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance, DeSantis said in the straight-to-camera video delivered in a cheerful tone. He continued, I signed a pledge to support the Republican primary... I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. Haley spoke at a campaign stop in New Hampshire just as DeSantis announced his decision. He ran a great race, he's been a good governor, and we wish him well, she told a room packed with supporters and media. Having said that, it's now one fella and one lady left. DeSantis's decision, while perhaps not surprising, giving his 30-point blowout loss last week in Iowa, marks the end of an extraordinary decline for a high-profile governor once thought to be a legitimate threat to Trump's supremacy in the Republican Party. After months of contentious exchanges, Trump struck a more conciliatory tone late Sunday during a rally in New York, calling DeSantis a really terrific person. I also look forward to working with Ron to win the general election, Trump said. In this story, Taylor Swift's townhouse in New York City appears to have been the target of another break-in attempt, this time by a man who was arrested near the singer's Tribeca home Saturday as police responded to a report of a disorderly person. Witnesses said the man tried but failed to enter the townhouse in the early afternoon. Police would not confirm a break-in attempt at Swift's home, but officers arrested a man on the same street when they were told he tried to open a door to a building. The man was charged on an unrelated 2017 warrant out of Brooklyn for allegedly failing to answer a summons. They didn't release the the man's name. An email seeking comment was sent Sunday to a rep for the You Belong With Me singer. It wasn't clear if she was at home at the time. 
The Tribeca townhouse has been the scene of several other break-ins and attempts when Swift wasn't there, including some by alleged stalkers. In 2022, a man was charged with trespassing and stalking after authorities said he entered two Tribeca residents linked to Swift. Also that year, a man was arrested for crashing a car into the townhouse and reportedly told police he wouldn't leave until he met with Swift. In 2018, another man broke into her townhouse and took a nap, police said. The same man was charged a year later with another break-in at the building after serving a jail sentence. Police say alleged stalkers have also been arrested at some of her other homes, including one in Beverly Hills and in Watch Hill, Rhode Island. And from London, Sarah, the Duchess of York, has been diagnosed with a malignant skin cancer that was discovered during her treatment for breast cancer. The melanoma was found after several moles were removed while she was undergoing reconstructive surgery after a mastectomy. Doctors are analyzing it to see if it was caught early. Clearly, another diagnosis so soon after treatment for breast cancer has been distressing, but the Duchess remains in good spirits, the spokesperson said. Sarah, 64, the ex-wife of Prince Andrew and the mother of Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie, was once a favorite target of Britain's tabloids. The former Sarah Ferguson, known as Fergie, has published her memoirs and authored a number of children's books, as well as a historical romance for adults. The announcement came five days after dual health announcements in Britain's royal family, Kate, the Princess of Wales, had abdominal surgery, and King Charles III is due this week to have prostate treatment. And the 10-day search to rescue two Navy SEALs lost in the Arabian Sea during a mission to board a ship and confiscate Iranian-made weapons has been ended, and the sailors are now considered deceased, the U.S. military said Sunday. In a statement, U.S. Central Command said the search has now been changed to a recovery effort. The names of the SEALs have not been released as family notifications continue. Ships and aircraft from the U.S., Japan, and Spain continuously searched more than 21,000 square miles, the military said. With assistance from the Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanography Center, the U.S. Coast Guard, Atlantic Area Command, and the University of San Diego Scripps Institute of Oceanography, along with the Office of Naval Research. We mourn the loss of our two naval special warfare warriors, and we will forever honor their sacrifice and example, said General Eric Carrilla, head of U.S. Central Command. According to officials, the January 11th raid targeted an unflagged ship carrying illicit Iranian-made weapons to the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Officials have said that as the team was boarding the ship, one of the SEALs went under in the heavy seas, and a teammate went in to try and save him. The commandos had launched from the USS Lewis B. Puller, a mobile sea base, and they were backed by drones and helicopters. They loaded onto small special operations combat craft driven by Naval Special Warfare crew to get to the boat. In the raid, they seized an array of Iranian-made weaponry, including crews and ballistic missile components such as propulsion and guidance devices and warheads, as well as air defense parts. It marked the latest seizure by the U.S. Navy and its allies of weapon shipments bound for the rebels, who have launched a series of attacks now threatening global trade in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden over Israel's war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip. 
The seized missile components included types likely used in those attacks. The U.S. Navy ultimately sunk the ship carrying the weapons after deeming it unsafe. The ship's 14 crew were detained. And here's an interesting sports story. Stanford's Vanderveer becomes winningest coach in all of college hoops. It never fails. Tara Vanderveer always takes a minute to thank everybody for coming to the game, and that includes offering her immense gratitude to the Stanford band. On Sunday, moments after her latest remarkable milestone in a career filled with them, and as the new winningest coach in basketball history, she politely asked the band to stop playing. Vanderveer took the microphone and began with her words of appreciation once more. Just as though who love her so hoped it turned out, Vanderveer passed, Van, Van passed former Duke and Army coach Mike Krasuski with her 1,203rd career victory at home in Maples Pavilion when number 8 Stanford beat Oregon State 65-56. It's really special to win a game and have you all here to celebrate, Vanderveer said. It's also really special to have so many former players come back. It's so exciting to see everybody. Thank you all very much for coming out. I really appreciate it. A head coach since age 24, Vanderveer celebrated with thousands on her team's home floor with a couple dozen former players on hand to cheer the Hall of Fame coach on for yet another triumph in a 45-year career filled with memorable accomplishments. And for a nearly full arena, this was also a, fans, a chance for fans to show their love for a Hall of Fame coach who has been shining her light on women's basketball for four and a half decades. This is a tremendous accomplishment for Tara Vanderveer, who is already one of the most accomplished coaches in the history of basketball, Krasuski said in a statement. This is yet another milestone to add to an amazing legacy. More important than all the astounding numbers and career accomplishments, she's positively impacted count countless lives as a coach and a mentor. Tara remains a true guardian of our sport. It was tense at times, with Vanderveer standing with arms crossed and pacing the sideline as Kiki Efren and her supporting cast made the big plays when it mattered most. I just love how our team battled, Vanderveer said. Vanderveer improved to 1,203 wins to 267 losses overall. A 17-time Pac-12 Coach of the Year with five National Coach of the Year honors, Vanderveer has captured three NCAA titles with Stanford, and she coached the 1996 U.S. Olympic team to a gold medal at the Atlantic Games during a year away from Stanford. What does it mean to me? It means everything. It's like your family member getting married or someone had a baby. Coach is making history. We will all come back and we will celebrate. That's from a former player. Vanderveer received warm ovations at every chance from the moment she walked out onto the court during pregame warm-ups and again for introductions. She credited the Beavers for their grace in offering congratulations in the handshake line after the final buzzer. And this was a huge game. Cody McMahon had a career-high 33 points and 12 rebounds as number 18 Ohio State rallied to stun number two Iowa 100-92 in overtime on Sunday despite 45 points from Hawks Hawkeye superstar Caitlin Clark. 
And as you probably know by now, the final four are set for the upcoming Super Bowl. Travis Kelsey caught two touchdown passes from Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs advanced to their sixth straight AFC Championship game with a 27-24 win over the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. The Chiefs clinched the win by running out the clock after Buffalo's Tyler Bass was wide right on a 44-yard field goal attempt with 143 remaining. Now the defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs, who are 13-6, will move on to Baltimore to face Lamar Jackson in the conference's top-seeded Ravens, who beat Houston 34-10 on Saturday. And the Detroit Lions, uh, let's see, the Detroit Lions beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 31-23 in the divisional round on Sunday, lifting Detroit into the NFC Championship for the first time in 32 years and only the second time in franchise history. The Lions, 14-5, won two playoff games in a season for the first time since 1957, the last year they won the NFL title and had two postseason games at home for the first time. Now they have to travel to San Francisco, the NFC's top seed, next Sunday for a spot in the Super Bowl, a game they have never played in. And you may not be interested in golf, but this is interesting. From Arnold Palmer's five tournament wins to David Duval's iconic final round 59 to come from behind and win the 1999 event, the American Express Golf Tournament has seen history time and time again. Now, next to Palmer and Duvall comes 20-year-old amateur Nick Dunlap. Looking for most of the day like the magic that had vaulted him to a three-shot lead entering the final round had evaporated, the University of Alabama sophomore Dunlap grinded down the stretch for a historic one-shot victory. He's the first amateur to win a PGA Tour event since Phil Mickelson in 1991. He set a tournament record by finishing 29 under par. So that's all the time I have for today. This is your reader, Beth, saying thanks for listening, and thank you for your continued support of the Audible Local Ledger.